Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. Hey, I'm Corbin. I'm the discipleship pastor here. Uh, We are going to continue our series on the divine narrative, which is just kind of like a fancy way of saying God's story. Um, So that's what we're going through. We're, We're looking at the Bible, God's story, in kind of the broad strokes terms. Uh, as we study scripture, typically when we do like a series and stuff, we dive in deeply to a particular passage or story or part. Uh, we, we tend to miss how it all connects and threads together, and we miss the overarching story that this Bible tells. Um, and that's, that's just what we are trying to highlight in this series, is as we look at each piece, we're not diving too deeply into the specific stories we are looking as a whole, what is, how does it tie together? How does it, bless you, it's okay. Uh, how does it all tie together? And uh, how does it all fit together? Because uh, this is God's story. This is what God has shared with us. Uh, and even though it was written across lots of different uh, decades and centuries and by different authors, there's a lot of common threads and themes that we can pick out. Uh, a couple of those themes, a few of those themes that I wanted to point out to you so that as we go through this series, you're kind of looking for these things. This is what, in our home groups, this is what we're doing right now is uh, after the sermon, we gather together and we discuss how these themes arise in each individual story. And you can start doing that practice on your own. Uh, and I, I made it easy for you by doing some alliteration. So the, the three themes that I want to draw your attention to as we go through this series is revelation, which is... Basically saying, who is God? And as we read through this, this narrative, this story that God has written for us, you'll be, get, you'll be able to see more and more clearly who God is. The second one is restoration. Uh, and that's what God is up to. He is at work to restore his kingdom and restore relationship with his people. And the third R is relationship. And that's why he's doing it, because he's trying to restore that relationship because he desires relationship. He desires relationship with his image bearers, which he created. Uh, And so revelation, restoration, and relationship, as you go through the Bible, you will see these themes come out of each and every story. Um, And what we've covered so far in Genesis chapter 1 through 11, if you haven't caught it, you can go back and watch it. But um, that whole part is kind of like God's preface. It's like how God is explaining why everything came into being and how it got to the place that it was. So we've looked at creation and we've looked at how God created everything to be good. He created his people, how sin enters in and continues to corrupt. And so God has been setting the stage for the rest of the narrative. And what we move into today is his introduction. Uh, So that was his preface explaining how things came to be. And now we move into his introduction, Genesis 12 through 50 which explains more or less, it sets the, the tones of the narrative and kind of explains what God is going to do and how he's going to do it. Uh, so you're going to see a lot of themes being set in stone of like how God is going to restore his kingdom and how God is going to restore relationship with his people. And so this week and the next two weeks, we are looking at the beginning of that introduction with three major people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are the patriarchs of the, the, our faith, really. And, and I, I say that because mostly they are like, we, we hear about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We look through and that's like the, the fathers of 
um, the Jewish faith, but I also believe that it's still relevant for us today. Uh, even though we aren't Jews, we are Christians, uh, they're still the fathers of our faith too. And we're going to talk more about that today, actually, because um, we're going to be looking at Abraham. And as we go through these three, uh, you're stuck with me, with me for three weeks, and I'm going to be unpacking this. I'm not going to go into every part of their story. Some of it, most of it, you probably already know, um, but I'm going to be highlighting on each different person, something that I think God is trying to set, like I said, set the tone for the rest of his story and relationship with his people. Uh, So we're going to be looking at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Today we're looking at Abraham and how he sets the tone for our relationship with God. Um, But before we dive into that, let's pray. Uh, God, thank you um, for the opportunity to share your word. You know how excited I am uh, to always do this. I love to teach uh, what you've shown me, but uh, I pray, Lord, that right now um, you move around me and, and um, let your words come out and let, let what you want to be said uh, spoken to everyone's hearts um, and help us just hear you and um, we give this time over to you. This is yours. This is what we do each week and we, we come to meet with you and I pray, Lord, that as, as we're doing that this week that you take our time and you, you speak to us and you teach us and you help us grow in our relationship with you. Uh, we love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, All right, so we're going to look at Genesis chapter 15, and we're going to read 1 through 6. It's not a very long passage, and I'm really only going to highlight one verse. Uh, But again, I'm not not trying to cover all of Abraham's story. You can read that on your own. It's it's a good one. Um, But I I am trying to point out something that God does with Abraham that I think uh, sheds light on every relationship that he ever has. Uh, So, Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram, that was his name before God changed it, in a vision. He said, don't be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir. But a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the stars, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham or Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. So uh, up to this point, Abram. Uh, has been called by God to get up and move. And so he and his family get up and move, and they're told to go to the land of Canaan, which is modern-day Israel, and it's occupied by the Canaanites. And, And as he's going through this land, God tells him, set up an altar because I want you to know that this land, your descendants will inherit. The only problem is, one, it's already occupied by somebody else, and two, he has no descendants. Uh, But he's moving through, he sets up the altar, and he believes God and trusts that God's going to fulfill that promise. Then he goes on a journey down to Egypt and does some other stuff and, you know, makes some mistakes, but then meets this Melchizedek guy. There's a lot of stuff you can read into the story. Uh, But then, after that, God comes back to him and tells him this, that, don't be afraid, I am a shield, I'm your very great reward. And Abram, at this point, while he believed God and trusts God, he is questioning, hey, you know, that's great. I know you promised me descendants. That's awesome. But I don't have any kids and I'm getting old and my wife's old and this is just not working out the way you said it was going to work out. This servant of mine, he's going to be the one that inherits my, my family and my, my promise. 
Uh, and God says, no, no, no. I, I want you to go outside. And I put up a, a picture uh, of the stars so that you can kind of get in the image of what Abraham was seeing that night. He was looking up at the stars and, uh, you know, there's no light pollution. So he probably saw a lot of them. Uh, and, he's, and God, and I love what God does. He throws a little shade here. He's like, look up at them and count them, if you can, you know. <laughs> if you have the ability to count them. But he's pointing out that his descendants are going to be so numerous that you can't even count them. Look at how many stars there are. God knows how many there are. But Abraham, at this time, has no idea. Um, and he tells him, that's how many, that's, so shall your offspring be. And then... One of the most important verses in the entire Bible, Abraham, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram believed God when he said, hey, look, those are going to be your offspring. Even though you're old, it's going to be one of your own flesh and blood. I'm going to give you a son. You're going to have an heir and you're going to have descendants more than you can count. And Abram believed the Lord. And God credited it to him as righteousness. So uh, that's what we're going to be looking at uh, today. That word that it says credited, it means reckoned. He was declared righteous. Um, and it's because Abram believed. Uh, and this is one of the, the, the key points that I want to highlight about Abraham is that he is the father of faith, not the father of anything else. And we're going to be looking at that today, that it, when God set up his introduction and he, when he wants to help people understand how he's going to restore and rebuild his kingdom and how he's going to restore and rebuild relationship with his people, he's going to do so through faith, not something else, not works, not actions, not any of this. He, he's going to build his relationship through a man that believes. And that's why Abraham is the guy that starts off all of this. It's important. Like, if you think about it, like, hey, God's going to start relationship with his people. He's going to start a nation, a, a, a kingdom of holy priests that's going to show who he is to the rest of the world. It's important that you pick the right guy to start that off. And Abram was the guy he chose. Uh, and if you read his story, he's not a perfect guy, but he believes. Now, I, I would love to sit here and preach and share you all my thoughts on this matter and like preach a sermon just based on this one verse, but I don't have to because Paul already did. So we're going to read Paul's sermon, uh, and I know, you're all grateful, you know, because who, who came here? I was talking with Devin. Who came here to listen to me? Uh, no one. We all came here to listen to God, and, and we're going to listen to God through Paul, uh, who wrote in Romans 4 basically an, an entire sermon on this one verse. Uh, so we're, we're going to look at what that says. I, I just want to set the, 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 the background of this. Remember that Paul, Paul's an apostle. Uh, he was a zealot that, you know, murdered Christians and stuff. Uh, and so he went around persecuting the church. God confronts him and helps him become who he was. He ended up becoming an apostle and planting churches and writing letters, which ended up occupying most of the New Testament and one of the letters he wrote was to the church in Rome, which he had never visited. He never got to go to Rome, and so he doesn't know these people all that well. He doesn't know what they're struggling with. So instead of writing them a specific letter about what they're dealing with, he writes them basically an overarching letter of everything he believes, uh, which is why Romans is so cool. And he spends the first three chapters of it. The, well, at the time, he didn't, have, he didn't like write chapter one. You know? like he, he just wrote a letter. Uh, but the first portion of it, he spends talking about how everyone is terrible. <laughs> we all are terrible. Everyone, everyone's like, yep, yep, okay, yeah. 
they, everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone has sinned. Everyone is guilty of sin. And guess what? Nobody has any excuse. The Gentiles, they don't know the law, but guess what? They still don't have an excuse. The Jews, they have the law. They know the law and they didn't fulfill it. They have no excuse. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone is condemned. And he's explaining that this power of sin, which is, which is at work in the world, it is corrupting and condemning. And I think a lot of people... You have to understand, Paul's view of sin isn't like our typical view here uh, nowadays. We, we think of sin as individual little minute things that we do wrong, mistakes that we make. That's sins. Uh, but Paul is talking about this power, this infection that's causing those symptoms. Uh, so if you think of like a sickness, you know, when you get sick, you have a cough, you have a runny nose, you have a fever, you have these things that show that you're sick. But that's not the sickness, that's the symptoms of the sickness. Same thing with the, the things that we see in our lives that we would call evil or sins. Paul is saying that's just evidence of the sin in your life, this power that is corrupting and condemning you. Uh, and everyone's guilty of it, everyone's been corrupted by it. And there's no, there's no getting out of it. Except, as he finishes in chapter 3, through the grace of Jesus. And Jesus comes to restore that relationship and redeem and justify his people, uh, anyone who believes in him. And so he's going to spend the rest of the next few chapters unpacking what that looks like and how that works, how believing in Jesus restores and justifies you, how you can be redeemed uh, because you believe in Jesus. And so he starts off all of that with Abram. Uh, well, now he's going to call him Abraham. Again, same person. Uh, so verse Verse 1 of chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He's quoting what we just read. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation, However, <clears throat> to the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So Paul, as he's sharing with the Roman church his theology and his understanding of how God has been at work, he's looking back to Abraham and pointing out that this is how God had intended it all the way in the beginning. His first his introduction to relationship with his people started with faith, and it's still about faith. It's not something new that came along with Jesus. No, it's always been about faith. It's all, always been about believing in God. I love in verse 2, he's talking about Abraham being justified if he, if he was capable of living a perfect life and being just a, a perfect person. He could boast. He could say, oh, I'm perfect. I, I did everything right. But he still couldn't boast before God because guess what? That's God's like bare minimum. God's bare minimum is perfection. Um, but Abraham wasn't perfect. If you know the story, if you want to read through it, he's not a perfect guy. He doesn't do things perfectly, so he can't be justified by that. No, in verse 3, Paul is quoting the scripture that we just read. What he was justified by, what, how he was declared righteous, was because he believed God. He didn't do anything. He didn't earn anything. He believed and he was declared righteous. Uh, and then he moves on to, to verse 4 where he's explaining uh, this idea that he's, he's unpacking that you can't earn grace. 
And that's not me saying like, oh, you know, you're just never going to be able to do enough. No, I mean, you literally can't. It's, it's a gift. If you try to earn something, if there's a contract where like I, I pay you to do something, if you fulfill that, I owe you. You did your part, now I owe you. That's not grace. If, however, you need help and I choose to give you something that you did not earn, that's grace. And so what Paul is saying is you cannot earn grace because if you did earn grace, it wouldn't be grace. Grace cannot be earned. It can only be received through faith. And you just, you just accept it and believe, thank you for this grace. So you can't earn grace. And Paul is explaining it. If you, if you could, it wouldn't be grace anymore. And then verse five, a, a divisive verse. Uh, and I really like what it says here. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. So unpack that a little bit. Like, however, to the one who doesn't work, to the lazy guy that doesn't do anything, but trusts God, he puts his trust in God to justify who? The ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. I can rephrase it for you. God's not here to justify. Jesus didn't come to justify the godly or the hardworking. He didn't come to justify those that want to earn anything or pave their own way or, or try to achieve something or accomplish something on their own. He came to justify only those that believe in him. So if you are in here thinking, oh, I'm doing great. I'm a good Christian. I'm, I'm doing all this work, and I'm this godly of a person. Obviously, God loves me. I am redeemed and justified. You're wrong. That is not what justifies you. You might be justified. I'm not saying you're wrong about that, but you're not justified because of your hard work, and you're not justified because of your godliness, because it will never be enough. It can never accomplish what you're hoping it to. The only way you can be justified, the only way you can be reckoned righteous like Abraham is if you believe. Faith is the key to that. Um, he's going to unpack, we're going to unpack more of that later, uh, so we'll get back to it. The next part, I'm going to skip through just because I don't have time to preach all of Paul's sermon. Again, you should read it. It's really good. Uh, but he, he goes on to talk about how David also understood this. So this isn't just something that Abraham understood. It's something that also David understood. And he quotes one of the Psalms uh, that you you... David felt like he was understand that his sins were covered and forgiven. Uh, and then Paul begins to unpack circumcision. Now, to understand this, under, like some of you guys know circumcision. Yeah, Google it. Anyway, uh, that's a bad idea. Don't do that. Um, <laughs> circumcision uh, is something that, that God t- commanded uh, Abraham later, and that was the sign of his covenant, his part in the relationship. Uh, and it came later after this righteousness was given to him because of his faith. Uh, and that's, that's actually when he becomes Abraham instead of Abram. Um, but what Paul is trying to illustrate in the next part, 6 through uh, 15, he's trying to help us understand that circumcision didn't give Abraham righteousness. It came after he was already declared righteous. Abraham was declared righteous when he believed, not when he was circumcised. Later, he was circumcised as a sign of his faith, as a sign of what he did believe. Uh, and so he, he did that, and there are works accompanied with faith, but it's not what saves Abraham. It's not what justifies Abraham. Abraham is justified because of faith. Uh, and circumcision is not, it's, he was justified before he was circumcised. So 
Uh, he's trying to ex- illustrate that. And for us, like a modern translation of that, because we don't really deal with the whole circumcision debate like Paul was dealing with in his day. Uh, we deal with a different thing. Remember, Paul's, Paul's helping uh, the Roman church, and he's talking to them, and he's helping them understand that Jews don't, or Gentile Christians don't have to become Jews to become Christian. You don't have to become circumcised. Why? Because when Abraham started his relationship with God, he wasn't circumcised. So if you are going to start your relationship with God, you don't have to also be circumcised. But some of the Jews in the day were like, you have to become circumcised because, you know, that hurts and it sucks. You have to do it. Um, Which, if you translate it to our modern day, is still something that we do. We, We still have this idea that a lot of Christian people are like, well, hang on, I've sacrificed a lot. I've, I've given a lot to God. Why does this person, Joe Schmo off the street, get to just get the same grace I get? He hasn't done anything. You see how it's still prevalent in this day? Like, we still have this idea that even though we're not talking about circumcision or something, we still talk about what we've sacrificed as if it's earned something, and it hasn't. Because we receive grace when we've done nothing. We receive grace when we believe, and that's it. And so that works for everybody else. God justified, came here to justify the ungodly and not the people that worked or anything like that. So if you're relying on your hard work and you're relying on your godliness, that's not what justifies you. Faith does. Uh, And then in verse 16, we'll, we'll pick up where he's leaving off. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only those who are of the law, but also those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of my nation? No, no, no. I have made you the father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that the calls into being things that were not against all hope abraham in hope believed so that he so and so became the father of many nations just as it had been said to him so shall your offspring be so um after the whole circumcision thing he he's kind of helping us understand that gentiles and and everybody that believes is now part of this family. That Abraham wasn't the father of the circumcised. Abraham wasn't the father of Israel. Abraham wasn't the father of following the law. Abraham is the father of all who believe. And that promise that God made to him, that if we pull up the stars again, uh, the promise that God made to him and showed him all these stars of how his descendants would be, this is not about all his physical descendants and people related by blood. It's about everyone who believes. That God started all those years ago, centuries and millennia ago, with Abraham. He started his relationship with his people and he set the tone that it's all about faith and Abraham was going to be the father of all of it, all the people who believe. And, he, and because of his faith, he was credited as righteousness. And now, if you look at those stars and you believe in Jesus and you believe and have this relationship with God, then one of those stars that Abraham was looking at represents you. You're part of the same family. You are part of the same promise that Abraham was given. And I love, in verse 16, he talks about that promise, and he says that it, may, it was by grace, and it was guaranteed by grace. And this is important, because you and I might think of a guarantee as something, uh, you, you'd feel more safe with a guarantee if it was dependent on you. 
So if you have a contract and you sign a contract, it feels like a guarantee, right? Like I sign a contract and it says, okay, I'm going to do this and you're going to give me this. That's how it's going to work. That's a guarantee. We put our hope and faith and trust in that because I'm going to live up to my end and I trust that because of this contract, you're going to live up to your end. Uh, and that's how we like our guarantees to be, you know, until, you know, someone revokes our pension and things don't work out the way we want because it doesn't always work. Um, but we like the guarantee to be on us because at least I can guarantee me, right? No, that doesn't work here. Because, again, as Paul was saying at the very beginning of his letter to the Roman church, you, you're, you can't do it. You can't make it. You're not going to be able to live up to the glory of God. You're not going to be able to fulfill your end of the promise. It's never going to work. You're not going to be able to do your part. You're going to fall short. You're always going to fall short. I know this because sin has corrupted us all. It's distorted us all and caused us all to fall short of God's glory. And because of that, we're not going to be able to live up. So if we want the promise to be guaranteed, if we want a guarantee, then that promise can't depend on you or me. It has to depend on God. And if, it's going, if his promise is going to depend on God, then it has to be grace, something given because you're never going to earn it. See how this works? Paul is explaining that the promise is guaranteed because it depends on God, his faithfulness and his goodness and his grace. And the only thing you can do to receive it, because you can't earn it, otherwise it wouldn't be grace, is to just believe. You believe. And as you believe, you receive the grace that God is giving and the promise is fulfilled. Sadly, I believe there's a lot of people that don't like it. We still have a, a, there's something in us, human nature, that just says, I want to earn it. I want to be able to justify by my own means. I want to stand on my own two legs and say that I am good because of me. I want the promise to be fulfilled because of me. And there's a lot of people missing out on the grace of God because they don't want to accept that they can't earn it. They don't deserve it. And that's okay. So, uh, the grace and the promise is dependent on God and his goodness. Let's read on. Verse 19 through 25, the rest of the chapter. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact, this is still Abraham, that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were not written for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So, Paul is, uh, is finishing this. I, this is actually where I have a, I, you know, I, this is where I like, I, I would in the crowd as Paul is preaching this sermon and sharing these thoughts, I'd sit there and be like, well, hang on. He didn't waver. He never weakened in his faith. I read the story of Abraham. I know what he did. He, he didn't do it perfectly. <laughs> he, he did not like completely trust everything. He, he made some mistakes along the way, which, you know, I think is actually kind of uh, vindicating a little bit. Cause like, as I look at my life, I, 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 I believe in Jesus. I think, you know, like I, I think that's, that's true about me. Uh, but does that mean I don't doubt that I don't struggle, that I don't try to take things into my own hands from time to time? 
yeah, I do all those things. And that's it, what makes me feel okay about that is that Abraham clearly at certain points struggles with his faith in God. He clearly struggles. Now, it, now, it may not have looked the way I think. Maybe Paul is talking about a different part of his faith. Um, but I definitely understand that while he says he's not weakening, I don't want you to run away with the idea that Abraham was some perfect guy, that he had, oh, he had complete faith, never once doubted, because as soon as you have your first doubt, you'd be like, oh, well, I'm not good enough. Abraham doubted. He, he had clear moments where he took matters into his own hands, and, and so Abraham, even though he had doubts, he still chose to believe in God and was credited with righteousness. And that, that faith, Paul helps us understand what that looks like in verse 21, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is the belief that Paul is, is pointing out that, that Abraham had. Abraham knew that God existed. Abraham knew that God had the power to do what he would do, and he believed that God would do it. And so that's, that's what is credited to him as righteousness. And, and that righteousness, that means he's, he's got right standing. He is uh, declared righteous and has right relationship with God once again. Uh, and that declared means like a judge. Like it, we have in our system uh, guilty and not guilty, right? But this is a third option. This isn't guilty or not guilty. You're not just innocent. You are righteous. That's what is being declared about Abraham. God is banging his gavel and not saying, you're innocent, I have forgiven you. No, he's, he's banging his gavel and saying, you are righteous. And it's all based on his faith. He unpacks that, Paul unpacks that even further in explaining how that has now extended to us, just like we are part of the promise because we believe like Abraham believes. Uh, we are now one of those stars. We are in his family. He is the father of us because he is the father of faith. We are also given righteousness just like he, he received. And this is because of Jesus. And Jesus didn't just die for us, he also rose again. He separates these two, and it's important to understand this because I think a lot of times we get lost on Jesus' death. Not that that's a bad thing, but Jesus' death paid the price for your sin. His rising again gave you righteousness. It's not just that one of those things happened, it's that both. Jesus could have, quote-unquote, lived an imperfect life and died for your sins, and that would have been great. You you had an atoning sacrifice. But you wouldn't be able to spend eternity with God in heaven because that's not, you need righteousness to be able to do that. You need right standing and right relationship with God. So Jesus had to live a perfect life, die a death he did not deserve, and because of his righteousness, death could not hold him. He was able to give his righteousness when he rose again. And so now in exchange for your sin and your, your, your mistakes, Jesus takes that upon himself, dies, and puts that to death. And in exchange, because he's able to rise again, because death has no power over him, because sin never took him, he's able to give his righteousness to you. So Jesus does both. He is able to take your sin and give you his righteousness. And it's because of that, when you, if you believe in him, go before God. I don't know exactly how it's going to look. I doubt there's going to be a gavel, but what you will be declared if you believe is righteous. You will have received Jesus's righteousness, not just forgiven, not just not guilty, righteous. So that's, that's Paul's sermon on, on how Abraham exemplifies this important part of God's relationship with us. 
that is based on faith, not works. That Abraham doesn't do something to earn his salvation. He simply believes. And as he believes, he's credited as righteousness. And the same thing is true for us today. Um, now, I know there's... What typically happens is... As you preach this, you go, well, hang on, man. I don't want you to run away with it. You don't have to do anything. God loves you. And it's like, that's typically we want to, I, I, you're an adults. I'm going to treat you like adults. I'm going to know that, you know what, you understand that if I'm telling you this is about faith, I don't need to add on to understand that there's going to be parts of that faith that involve you doing something. That if you truly believe and have a relationship with God, you're going to do something about it. Just like Abram, he believed God, but he also moved. And he also circumcised himself at a very old age. That could not have been fun. So he, he lived out his faith. It wasn't just that he didn't do anything. He, he did stuff. But that's not what gave him righteousness. It wasn't what he did that gave him righteousness. It was his faith. And um, there's no one that I think gives us a, a better understanding of this than Paul. And the reason why I wanted to talk about Paul today... Um, well, why I felt God wanted me to talk about Paul is because Paul understands grace probably better than anybody. Uh, he had, like I said, he was a murderer. He, he went around and killed Christians. And so if you think, I, I think we gloss over this, oh, Paul was such a great apostle and stuff. You have to imagine that at least early on in his ministry, as he's going around to other Christians, they had to look at him like he was a monster. I don't know about you. You give me one look there, I'm like, I don't know if you like me. I'm going to crumble inside. <laughs> It's a problem, I know, but uh, I'm working on it. But this is something that I'm sure Paul had to deal with. He probably was better at dealing with it, with it than I am, but I, I'm still imagining that at some point he was dealing with a lot of people who hated him and were afraid of him. Paul knew. He had thrown in his face. He had plenty of reminders, probably had flashes of the face of the people that he saw die because of what he told people to do. And probably had to run into people that he had put in prison, that he had beaten. He probably had to run in and have reminders all over the place of his mistakes. Paul knew better than anybody. He didn't deserve grace. He didn't deserve right relationship with God. He didn't earn or deserve anything. In fact, he knew better than anybody he could never earn it. He could never fix his mistakes. He could never go back to the way things were. He could never equal it out. He had... He needed grace. He needed something freely given that he did not deserve. And Paul knew that better than anybody. And that's one of the things that um, God's been kind of reiterating to me. I, I've, I had learned this lesson a long time ago, um, but over the past few years, I've been maturing. I know it doesn't always look like it, but I've been, I, I've, I think I've been getting better. You know, like I've been growing up. And I, I think uh, over that time, I've been starting to recognize, like, oh, you know, I'm doing okay. I'm not making nearly as many mistakes as I was before. I, you know, I, I've slowed down. I've calmed down. I'm, I'm, you know, a little more headstrong, a little more wise. God has done a work in my life, and I'm doing better. And there's a, this element that I hadn't realized where I was recognizing that I feel like I had kind of made up for my mistakes, that I was getting to a place of at least equilibrium. If not, I'm, I'm a better person. I, I, I'm a net positive on, on earth standards. Like, <laughs> I'm a better, I'm a more of a benefit to society than I was a, a bad person in society. So I started to realize that the, my, my security and my trust was in that. 
the fact that I was becoming a better person and not in God's grace. And so God had to, in his most loving way, remind me that I am a terrible human being. <laughs> so, and it was, it's, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to be confronted with mistakes. It's hard to be confronted with your sin. It's hard to be confronted with these things. And it reminds me, you know, I, I have no right. I have no right to any of this. I have no right to stand on this stage and preach to any of you. I have no right to tell anybody about anything. I, I, I'm just as much of a sinner, if not more so, than all of you. But that's not the point of this. The point of this is grace. And that's what Paul understood, and that's what God has been helping me re-understand after he helps me realize that, oh yeah, you need to remember, it's not about your goodness, it's about my goodness. It's not about your faith, it's about my faith. It's not about your trust, it's about my trust and my belief in you. So I've been working on that, and God's been helping me. And and those are the two key aspects that I think Paul exemplifies very well. He understands he's a sinner, and that he needs God's grace, and he's not ever going to earn his salvation. And he also understands the power of God's grace, that it is greater than any amount of sin he ever has ever will commit any, any, any amount of mistakes that he has made, they will be covered by the blood of Jesus because the blood of Jesus is greater than anything. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. You will never outsin the grace of God. You just, you, you can't. It's that, it's that powerful. Jesus is that good. His love is that strong <clears throat> that you will, as Paul writes later in this, this very same letter, that you will never be able to separate yourself from his love. No matter what. So, Paul understands these two things well. He needs grace, and that the grace is abundant and sufficient for him. And it's because of that, that Paul becomes one of the hardest working, most godly people that lives after those points. And here's the problem, is when we get to this point, you think, I want to live like Paul. And you think, I'm going to go live, I'm going to go work really hard, and I'm going to go be really godly. And we can't do that. Because that's not why Paul did those things. Paul did those things because he understood grace. If you understand grace and you understand your place, that you can never earn salvation and that you ha- it has to be given freely because of what Jesus has done for you, and you also understand that Jesus' grace is sufficient enough to handle your sin, if you understand both of those things and really take that to heart, you will become, like Paul, someone that is motivated to every extent. I will give everything. I will do anything to help other people understand what Jesus has done for them. But it's not some kind of obligation that you're going to go and try. I'm going to go look like Paul. I'm going to go be like Paul. You understand? You have to do the first part first. You have to understand grace first before you can be Paul because otherwise it becomes this inauthentic thing. You're just going out to look like Paul to kind of sound and act like Paul. And there were people that tried to do that. It didn't go so well for them. And you've probably run across Christians in your life that Christians that come across you and invite you to church and invite you to the things and they're, they're trying to get you to do all this stuff to make themselves feel better, make themselves feel secure because they're trying to earn their own salvation. It's inauthentic and you can feel it, you can sense it, that this isn't coming from a place within them that they're super excited about because they understand grace. This is coming from some kind of obligation that they feel like they can earn something. And if we don't want to become those inauthentic Christians, then we have to genuinely believe and understand grace like Paul. We have to understand how much we need Jesus. We have to understand how much our sin has corrupted us, and we have to understand that his grace and his love is strong enough to overcome that. 
And then, if we have that genuine understanding of grace, we will have real faith that leads to authentic works. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.